Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. How's life back in Texas, Dave? Couldn't be better. Yeah, but uh, the only thing better than your neighbor's taking care of your uh, pipes during you know, crazy, you know, once in a century uh, weather wave is um, for your neighbor upon your return to say, go out and buy yourself a 12 to 14 pound brisket. I'd like to put it in my new smoker and, and make it uh, for you guys. <laughs> so uh, we've, uh, we said that I, I set my animal, uh, my a animal as a cow and we've had a lot of cow, a lot of brisket uh, all week. And it's um, in every form, I think brisket nachos, brisket ravioli brisket, brisket everywhere so can't lose so things are good yeah can't lose yeah and uh weather's good and and uh yeah it's nice and uh, planted seed and and uh you have spring here as well so all, all good in texas how about new york how are things there we've had some really nice weather the last three or four days the kids have been out riding bikes and doing all kinds of outside stuff i think it's going to get a little cooler next week but next week is spring break so whether it's quite spring or not, it'll still be a nice break. We're going to lead off the show today by talking a little bit about the first primetime address of President Biden last night, marking the first anniversary since the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a global pandemic, at least an appropriate date for thinking about the beginning of our experience. I think it was the day before that, that at King's, we decided that we couldn't continue in our normal way and started to prepare for doing things remotely the rest of the semester. So this is right around that time where I think a lot of us are having those associations and remembering where we were uh, last middle of March when the whole world began to change. Uh, Susan Crabtree writing at Real Clear Politics under the headline, a caveat laden entreaty from your uncle Joe uh, describes the speech in this way. She says, during and after the address, the president's supporters reveled in a return to civilized and sober discourse compared to the freewheeling, in-your-face, often offensive, but always news-producing comments of his predecessor. President Trump overpromised and underdelivered last year. Notably trying to assure Americans early in the pandemic that restrictions could be lifted by the first upcoming holiday, Easter. That was overly optimistic, to say the least, and it dashed Americans' hopes as the full magnitude of the still-developing pandemic began to set in during the spring of 2020. It's a mistake Biden has steadfastly avoided throughout his campaign and in the first weeks of his presidency. Better to under-promise and over-deliver has been the prevailing Biden theme, even if over-delivery means hitting a mark just slightly above the status quo, as he did when promising early on to provide 100 million vaccination shots by his 100th day in office. And and just to amplify that point, um, it's really been, I think, one of the central narratives of that speech and of the administration from day one to say that they were in a very difficult spot, that they were left a big mess by President Trump, and obviously all this setting them up to claim lots of credit when when things are better. And uh, so Biden, for example, was talking about July 4th as maybe a date when Americans might be able to get together outside in small groups if we're all responsible, uh, which is strange. We've been doing that all along, right? Outside has been something that we've been told all along is is okay in small groups. And the CDC has actually already said that it's okay for people that are vaccinated, at least to meet indoors, which is already something of a a conservative take on on things coming out of the CDC. But but even there, the the CDC is ahead in March of of where President Biden seemed to suggest that we're going to be in July. Well, I think as mentioned in this Real Clear Politics piece, the Biden administration and President Biden have made a, a serious effort to try to tone things down a, a little. But that doesn't mean that there's still not uh, partisanship uh, present and division present within the speech itself. Uh, probably the most effective part of the speech was the beginning where he talked about the loss that we had all suffered as a country um, individually, but then he emphasized collectively and that uh, this is a collective effort. He'll go on in the speech to argue that we need to uh, work together as a country. But what's so interesting is that emphasis on collective, Matt, when it comes to moving forward as a collective body, uh, is not at play when he talks about 
or didn't even mention Operation Warp Speed or any of the efforts by the Trump administration or any of his officials uh, in 2020 to really work hard on developing these vaccines, to have uh, companies work together uh, to purchase hundreds of millions of these vaccines uh, as early as possible so that uh, these things could be produced, both large companies and small companies. I think it would have been very easy uh, and soothing uh, for the country uh, for President Biden to have said, uh, I've said, you know, many critical things to the president, and I don't think his administration was a good one. That's why I ran against him in the presidency. But one of the things I think that the Trump administration did right in 2020 is build up this effort to build these vaccines. We didn't start anew January 20th of 2021. We could build upon the efforts of Republicans, independents, Democrats who weren't going about their business politically, but just knew that the country was in need of scientific research and production, et cetera, an arsenal of all uh, to fight uh, something that we all suffered from. But there's none of that in this speech. So I would say that the, the speech was maybe one-fourth uh, empathy. That was definitely the, the lead, I think, as you said. Uh, one-fourth maybe cajoling, trying to keep people with their masks on and following the rules for X number of months to come. Uh, one-quarter political bar setting at a very low level, as we've just been talking about. And the last quarter, maybe some ideological score settling. One of the passages that struck me early on um, the president says, look, we know what we need to do to beat this virus. Tell the truth, follow the scientists and the science, work together, put trust and faith in our government to fulfill its most important function, which is protecting the American people. No function more important. We need to remember the government isn't some foreign force in a distant capital. No, it's us, all of us, we the people. The, the, the second word that... Um strikes me as important in the speech is the word truth. You mentioned this story of being in Philadelphia in July of last year and uh, asking a woman, what do you want from me? And she says, I just want the truth. And uh, New York Times, uh, to their credit, did a, a fact checking of the speech and found a variety of different instances where um, there was exaggeration or there was misleading as to uh, what was done, how it was done, uh, et cetera. And I think that we've said this before in this show, uh, there was a lot that we didn't know in March of 2020. There was a lot that we didn't know in June of 2020 or September of 2020. Uh, we didn't know that there'd be this great spike and that it would work the way that it did. If people knew perfectly what was going to happen with the virus in 2020, uh, we would have done things that we could to uh, have prevented uh, the tragedy that it's become. But when you look across the board, Matt, at California, we've lived there, Texas, we've lived there, New York, all these different states that practiced a different way of trying to deal with the virus. And you look at the amount of deaths in each of these states and the amount of people who um, have tested positive, and there's quite a bit of equality there, even though there were different methods employed, uh, which I think speaks to the issue uh, that the truth of the matter is how little we have known or been absolutely positive about uh, throughout the whole affair. Yeah, which I think gets nicely at the point about following the scientists and the science, right? Because it's easy to say, well, we just follow the scientists, but where, as the scientists have learned, right, the scientific consensus has been difficult to discern. And the science itself is just data gathered in real time over the course of time. And of course, that's led to competing interpretations by scientists as to what course of action is best to take. And I think there's just this overall, we can't develop it all right here, but this overall problem with an ideology that, that begins with the science and the scientists, right? There's a reason Aristotle said that politics is the master science. Politics is the master science because politics has to exercise prudential judgment in light of the claims of science, as well as other goods, competing goods. They have to be balanced against each other. And if we just follow the science and the scientists on, on pandemics, then we're gonna miss out on the economists. And we're going to miss out on the psychologists who have some things to say about what happens when you lock down. And the theologians who have a few thoughts about what ought to happen when people gather for corporate worship, right? There are actually other goods besides the mere science of pandemics and viruses that, that a wise political leader is going to have to work through in plotting a course in the midst, as you just said, Dave, of great uncertainty. 
Yeah, and, and he mentions we the people um, in his address. It's not, you know, we the scientists or we the people who follow the scientists. And, and uh, I think there's also deference that need to be paid that needs to be paid to civil society, to individuals within it, um, to the amount of risk that they're willing to take in their lives. Uh, and um, there's there's a great difference of opinion, you know, on those matters as well. So I, I, I double down on on your point that uh, we are not merely a regime of scientists. Um, we are a democratic Republican regime that ought to operate as such. Well, on that note, and with a chance to think about some of these issues more deeply as we move along, let's turn to our required reading and we begin volume two of Democracy in America. So uh, volume two, I always found interesting when I first started teaching it, that it, it, it deals with four sections. Tocqueville breaks down his discussion into four sections. And when you look carefully at the title of the first three sections, he talks about the influence that democracy has on, first of all, the intellect, uh, secondly, the sentiments, and then thirdly, the mores or habits of the heart. So it's as if Tocqueville is telegraphing to us that he understands that uh, society uh, has kind of in some uh, an intellect, as do individuals, uh, that it has kind of a sentimental trajectory, and that it also has a heart. Uh, as do um, individuals. So these three parts, this tripartite soul that's so much a, a se- that's so central uh, to political philosophy and examining individuals in society is, is something that Tocqueville uses here uh, to analyze philosophically the influence that democracy is going to have uh, upon democratic peoples. Of course, he'll finish up his discussion uh, by going into the influence that all of these things are going to exert on the government and the relationship between the rulers and the ruled. And, and it's there that he gets into this uh, danger that he sees of the growth of a soft or democratic uh, despotism. But I think these two topics are linked. The way that democracy influences the individual parts of the soul and the society. So, I'm getting to the topic of the influence of democracy on the intellect. Uh, Tocqueville reminds us he's not an adversary of democracy, but he wants to understand it. He wants to understand how it works and what influence it's had. And he says here uh, of, of Americans and of American democracy that there's no country in the civilized world less occupied with philosophy than the United States. Yet Americans, without, without ever having read this author, are inclined to Descartes' philosophical method. And it, when, I, when you read this, you remember back to that uh, debate, I think that Marco Rubio was involved in, do we need more philosophers or plumbers? And I remember our kings at the time, our philosophy professors, uh, Josh Blander and David Talca were like, no, we need philosophers. And But it's really interesting, right, to think about just how philosophic or non-philosophic a people Americans are? And, and why is it that we may incline more towards practice than theory? And that when we're even thinking through subjects, uh, there often needs to be a practical application. And I think that you get the sense here in this discussion, uh, and I think we know this well as Americans, that we tend to be a nation of doers. Now, there's some thought involved but thought inclined towards getting something done, that old Nike commercial, just just do it. Think about Descartes as a thinker. You often kind of come to this kind of main precept that is often associated with him. I think, therefore, I am. And what is emphasized in that precept? The I, that central to American life and American democratic life is that we are an association of I's. And we tend to grant authority, we tend to grant um, a standard of judgment, or we did, to the I. The I can make out the world for himself or herself. Now, is there anything anything problematic when you transfer intellectual authority to the I? And I think the answer that Tocqueville gives is, yes, there could be. If the I... So think of that letter I, the individual. If the individual uses that new authority and comes to learn about the world in a way that they otherwise would not have um, come to to think about the world through study, um, through reading, through uh, the development of prudence and all the other things, then what a great liberation right, to have a people who can think for itself. But what happens if the I 
now granted the authority to think for himself or herself, chooses not to, uh, chooses to defer to some new source of authority. And we've talked about this often um, in this season. What happens when the individual turns to the opinions of the majority and just because the majority seems to be going in a certain direction, there's like a herd-like mentality in one direction, well, the herd must be right. And, and I, just one individual looking at the herd moving here, I must be doing something wrong if I think I to be going right and the herd is going left. So it, it leaves open here, um, Tocqueville will tell us, the possibility that a set of liberated eyes who are left to think about the world for themselves will soon form new traditions, new ideas uh, in which they fall into dogmas that may be problematic for them. You know, what, are, what are those things that can inform that individual eye apart from the majority? Because we're, we're skeptical, right? This is the, the, the key insight here. We're, we're skeptical. We're, we're, we're doubters, right? In this extreme Descartian sense of, of doubting anything that we can't demonstrate. And so we're, we're, we're cast free from all these sources of truth that might allow us to, to navigate the churning waters of democracy safely. And all we have left to grasp onto is that, is that powerful opinion of the majority. Yeah. And he, in fact, Matt goes right into the, this, what this looked like historically on the bottom of page 404, the top of page 405 in the uh, Winthrop Mansfield translation. He says, uh, let us consider for a moment the chain of events. Uh, in the 16th century, the reformers submit to individual reason, some of the dogmas of the ancient faith, but they continue to exclude all others from discussion. In the 17th, Bacon, who we'll get to later, in the natural sciences and Descartes in philosophy properly so-called, abolish the received formulas, destroy the empire of traditions, and overturn the authority of the master. The philosophers of the 18th century, finally generalizing the same principle, undertake to submit the objects of all beliefs to the individual examination of each man. Who does not see that Luther, Descartes, and Voltaire made use of the same method, and that they differ only in the greater or lesser use that they claimed one might make of it? So there are some who would not take that method to the extent that others would. And, and here we go back to the beginning of, of Democracy in America, where he talks about the Puritan influence upon the United States, where um, the, the people who come to the United States and settle in the United States for, or settle in the North American continent uh, for religious reasons, there's a, there's a realm, right, in which they're not going to lift off the veil of that which is sacred. They'll, they're open to talking about, well, how should we organize ourselves politically? What's the right economic system? All, all of these questions, but there are certain things right, that are beyond the authority of, of the eye. And I think that um, where it's going with this, Matt, because he'll, he'll tell us later in the same discussion about the difference between the Americans and the French and the English, is that there's, there's, there's been a restraint placed upon the American mind, a constraint placed upon it that, that's been good for American society. It's not, um, it's not um, individualism unto license. Uh, it's an individualism, as you said, that's, that's been informed by traditions that can help that individual make their way through life. And Christianity in particular provides that firm foundation upon which they can build a life that has some ultimate connection to ultimate purposes and, and isn't just influenced by the latest ideas coming out of the transient majority. So the second point that Tocqueville makes after talking about uh, the kind of Cartesian American mind, and it's interesting, right, that he, he uses Descartes as his point of reference rather than what we usually think of as Thomas Hobbes and John Locke, but there's a, there's a tie there between Hobbes and Locke thinking about individuals and, and, and Descartes. But then he goes on to talk about dogma, and he says that every individual needs a certain amount of dogma to make their way through their everyday existence. So the way I always describe this in classes, you don't wake up questioning every single fact of your life. You don't get out of bed and say, you know what? I wonder if gravity is going to happen on March 13th. Uh, you know, I just, I'm going to just take it gently, right? Or whether if I 
put water over heat, whether I'll be able to make a cup of tea or coffee. They're just things that you accept over time. And he says that aristocratic societies have their dogmas, but democratic societies will also have their dogmas. And the, the question that we have to think about is that when you have a democratic dogma, will it be a dogma that excites and um, produces within the individual a desire to learn more? Or will that dogma willingly, in his language, induce the individual to stop thinking? So how's he going to think through whether or not this is going to happen in the United States? He, he begins by saying that Americans are drawn more towards general ideas than their English forefathers, but they're also drawn more towards particular ideas than the French. So note what he's done here. In America, there is kind of a sense of the universal that comes from the idea of equality, that comes from Christianity, that comes from the pace of life and the engagement in commercialism. And yet there's also an important sense for particulars. Why? Because Americans have directed their own public affairs. Uh, they've engaged in the particulars of governance at the local level. So oftentimes I, I describe kind of wisdom as kind of this ability to kind of see universals and particulars, to focus in on particulars where they matter, but to draw away and to get a good sense of the universals at play at the same time. And I think that, that Tocqueville is arguing here that, that that kind of right appropriation of universals, of, of, of general way of thinking about principles and particulars will lead us in the right direction. And here he goes on to say that part of the equation to kind of drawing upon universals, universals and particulars has been the part played by the church in the United States, uh, that he says religion knows how to make use of democratic instincts. Tocqueville writes, I am brought to think that if he has no faith, he must serve, and if he is free, he must believe. Uh, we, we begin well, we have a solid, uh, stable foundation with regard to the influence that democracy has exerted over our intellect. The question will become, will that continue moving forward? And really that question, as Tugva's trying to boil it down, is will America remain a people with a strong religious foundation? Right? That, that, that's, that's really the test of the question of whether that freedom intellectual freedom can be maintained, is there something binding it together? Is there something that draws limits around it so that it's a productive, liberating freedom rather than a licentious one? Yeah. And, and just, you know, Christianity as, as a way of living, as a, as a moral foundation for society, does it provide that better than, than other faith, other, other traditions or other religions, I should say. And, and here he says in, in a very famous passage that he does not believe that Islam as a religion will work well in the modern world because it demands too much of its adherence. There's no line drawn uh, between the ought and the is. Whereas in Christianity, there's, there's proper uh, reference paid to the ought uh, and recognition of, of what's due of oneself with regard to that sphere and the accounting within that sphere that will be eternal. But also there's the is, the world that we live in, uh, the imminent world. And, and uh, he says here, um, religions uh, don't burn, burden uh, the people with external practices. They don't get involved uh, in some debates uh, that they would otherwise get involved in. Um, and this is kind of interesting and, and very controversial. Uh, and he says, religion should be careful not to question a people's love of well-being. And here's kind of a part where, all right, well, is that, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Is that good advice or bad advice? I guess it's good advice if what you're arguing for is the continued presence of religion in American life. It's a bad thing if what happens is religion begins to kind of push this, um, this centrality of imminence and well-being and do whatever feels good for you. And that's what the church becomes over time. And it's a very difficult prudential judgment that he's advocating here because he wants a church that is able to restrain a people. And he recognizes that the American people, democratic peoples, will only take so much restraint. 
So you have to pick your battles, right? You have to decide what, which hills are you going to die on? And his recommendation is don't die on the hill of trying to oppose material improvement. That democratic societies cherish that. And if you say, well, that's, that's no good in some fundamental way, then you will simply lose the people. And he says something similar about how clergy approach public opinion and, and warns them right, not to be too critical of public opinion. And, and yet again, here too, you, you can see this is a, a two-sided question because where does this show up in antebellum America most clearly? In the lack of effort by the church really to do something about slavery. So there's a real risk here that you embrace too much of the dogmas and the prejudices of a democratic society that, that maybe you, you keep people in the pews, but are you actually doing them all the spiritual good you could be doing? Yeah, so I'm going to hold off on getting to his discussion of uh, pantheism and perfectibility because I think these become some of the major democratic dogmas with regard to the intellect moving forward. I think we can tie them to uh, next week's reading when we get into literature, the sciences, how we learn and, and what we learn and what we don't learn. But I think that um, this is really kind of interesting. Right? We, he begins with uh, who we give credit to or assign authority to with regard to the intellect, talks about dogma, talks about the need to balance or think through universals in particulars, but ends the discussion by talking about the, the tendency towards pantheism and the tendency towards perfectibility that might lead us astray from those kind of Christian and ancient foundations. So uh, more to be said about that next week. But I want to get into our adjacent reading for the week, uh, which our, our thinker for this week is uh, Francis Bacon. And I want to reference uh, his essay, Aphorism Concerning the Interpretation of Nature, the first book um, and paragraphs 38 through 48. And, and this is where uh, Bacon famously talks about idols uh, that occupy men's mind that uh, make it difficult for truth uh, to make its way forward in the world. Uh, so here uh, Bacon references four idols, uh, the idol of the tribe, the idol, excuse me, the idols of the tribe, the idols of the cave, the idols of the marketplace, and the idols of the theater. And he says at the beginning of this discussion, the proper way to keep idols at bay and to drive them off is no doubt to form ideas and axioms by true induction. So induction must lead us forth uh, in, in the world. But what are these idols and, and how do they influence the way that we think about the world? Well, the idols of the tribe are found within human nature itself. The tribe is mankind itself. He says the human intellect is like a distorting mirror which receives light rays irregularly and so mixes its own nature with the nature of things which it distorts. Well, there's something in being human that leads to distortion. Secondly, the idols of the cave are the idols of the individual man. He writes, everyone has his own personal cave or den that breaks up and corrupts the light of nature. Thirdly, he talks about the idols of the marketplace, idols that he says are formed by men's agreements and associations. The fact that we associate by talking to one another could be a good thing, could lead to wisdom, but in many ways leads to distortion. And then finally, uh, the idols that come into uh, our, our minds through the theater. It's interesting here because a lot of people think Bacon was Shakespeare or vice versa. And the uh, influence, and we're going to get to Shakespeare next week. Uh, what, are the, what, is the, what are the idols of the theater amount to? And, and here he says, they are the idols that have come into men's minds from various philosophical dogmas and from topsy-turvy laws of demonstration. These are the idols of the theater. So uh, here he's saying, I think something very interesting, all, all of those philosophical thinkers of the past, they're really poets. Uh, they, they really are, are people who kind of put on a good play uh, and have thus distorted the minds of men because of their play. So what is Bacon's uh, antidote to, to all of these idols? Well, I've already mentioned we need to rely upon induction. But the second thing that we need to do, and this is really, really interesting in light of um, Aristotle's four causes, uh, discussion of four causes as we try to understand the world that we live in, 
what Bacon says that we need to focus on in trying to understand the world are primary causes, not final causes. Can you link together cause and event, or cause and events as you try to make your way through uh, understanding the world that you live in? Or do you try to um, instill within the world that we live in, in metaphysics, this kind of final purpose uh, in which there is a reason why things are happening and we must understand what that reason is and figure out right who is who is who is pointing us forward and what is the the meaning of life and, and what is the narrative what's the meta narrative of our existence bacon says we have to stop doing that just go back to the basics of cause and effect what happens and how events play out over time. And you know, I think that there's, uh, there's a lot here that has been very influential in how modern science has taken up you know, how the world works. Right? The why uh, becomes less important. Right? The what becomes uh, central. And you know, that uh, has an influence uh, upon the American mind, has an influence upon the modern mind. And you know, the question, I think, as we get to the headlines, Matt, of, you know, what are some of the dangers of this way of thinking uh, going to be for uh, modern people and Americans? Well, I think it actually takes us back to that passage we were looking at a few minutes ago from President Biden's speech about the science and the scientists, uh, this idea that, that scientists have some special access to truth and that we better follow them, right? I think it's an important word to say, follow, follow the scientists and follow the science, right? Who's, who's in front, who's behind, who's leading and who's, who's following. And so what Bacon's telling us is that this inductive method, which is the method of science, right? We, 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 we do various experiments. We take note of the data that results from those experiments. We, we build up from that a system of thought and ideas that we can test and eventually develop principles and maybe ultimately laws from that. But this whole, this whole method never really leads us to that question of, of why, uh, the ultimate purpose. There's no need for that. All we see is these little links in the chain of events. And so we want to understand how a virus works. And we want to understand how a virus spreads. And, and these are all the, 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 the important questions of the matter. Uh, whereas the, the ultimate questions of, well, what's actually human flourishing look like? What does it mean to, to live a, a good human life, even in very challenging circumstances? Those kind of questions just kind of disappear. And, and instead, we've got lots and lots of talk about the latest scientific journal research on this matter or that related to this pandemic, but, but very little, at least that's, that's brought front and center on, on the whole question of how we as human beings interact with each other and in a hostile world. Yeah, it's always interesting, Matt, that you know, often the times, you know, economists would try to simply reduce man to homo economicus or um, the purveyors of culture, uh, homo, homo culturus, or, or here, you know, homo scientist. Uh, but in reality, I, I think, and I'm not saying anything too risque here, uh, is Aristotle correct that we are political animals, uh, that makers of culture are political, that scientists are political, that economists are political, and that politics, questions surrounding justice, what is the best life, et cetera, the final ends play a part in every one of our existences. Even rejecting right final ends is, is in, in many ways right an, a political argument to be made. So um, to think that we can kind of sanitize <clears throat> the world we live in by simply following a certain type of person, I think is very dangerous for humankind. And pretend that we can ignore the ultimate moral questions and just substitute for them factual questions based in scientific inductive types of studies. All right. Well, before we turn to the headlines, let's get the assignment for next week, Dave. What are you going to have us read? It's going to be a very short reading. I'd like people to read chapter seven from part one, titled What, what Makes the Mind of Democratic Peoples Lean Toward Pantheism? Chapter eight, How Equality Suggests to the Americans the Idea of the Indefinite Perfectibility of Man. And then read right up into page 438, uh, where he talks about Americans applying themselves to the practice of sciences rather than to the theory. So a little short reading, probably 10 or 15 pages, the shortest reading of all, which will allow people to focus on college basketball. All right. Well, let's turn to the headlines then. So 
think it's fair to say that Tocqueville is a keen observer of how much American democracy owes to American Christianity in preventing its worst impulses from being realized. And it seems to be one of his central theses as he goes through how democracy has certain weak points and Christianity is strong at those weak points. And so there's been a number of people that have been observing in recent years, but maybe in an accelerated form in recent months, the way that our politics has taken on something of religious quality to it. And I think in a couple of different ways that this is becoming more and more the case. So in one, one sense, we have many people for whom politics essentially is their religion, uh, that all the significance that uh, Christians like ourselves put into Christianity and following Christ, they put into political things and achieving political goals. And, and they look to politics for the answers to those questions that all religions address about ultimate purposes, the kinds of questions we were saying, Bacon doesn't really want us to talk about anymore in the modern world. Uh, but then also, I think in addition to that, that politics has been now forced to carry certain religious weight to it so that we're expecting kind of meta-narrative that tells a story about sin and judgment, salvation, and, and that politics is gonna be the, the vehicle for that and that political leaders or political movements will be involved in that, almost taking the place of God in these kind of religions and exercising judgment and, and determining who are the people in the right versus those that are in the wrong. So you know, in, in light of this, very interesting piece in the Atlantic this week called America Without God uh, by Shadi Hamad. And I want to just walk through a little bit of the argument here and, and get your thoughts on this, Dave as we do that. So he begins with this set of observations on kind of where we are. So the United States had long been a holdout among Western democracies, uniquely and perhaps even suspiciously devout. From 1937 to 1998, church membership remained relatively constant, hovering at about 70%. Then something happened. Over the past two decades, that number has dropped to less than 50%, the sharpest recorded decline in American history. Meanwhile, the nuns, Atheists, agnostics, and those claiming no religion have grown rapidly and today represent a quarter of the population. But if secularists hope that declining religiosity would make for more rational politics drained of faith's inflaming passions, they are likely disappointed. As Christianity's hold in particular has weakened, ideological intensity and fragmentation have risen. American faith, it turns out, is as fervent as ever. It's just that what was once religious belief has now been channeled into political belief. Political debates over what America is supposed to mean have taken on the character of theological disputations. This is what religion without religion looks like. So we see the elevation of the stakes of political debate because it's been given religious significance by, by so many in our country. Yeah, I mean, there, there is always disagreement. We as human beings having the power to assess the world in front of us and to make claims, moral or otherwise, we're not going to always agree with regard to those claims. But there's something of, of a relief that is present when we don't believe that all of our claims have to be realized in the here and now or in the immediate. You think about differences of opinion uh, between, say, interventionists and isolationists in, in the 1930s and 1940s in the United States or other disagreements between this tax policy or that tax policy. Does that undermine uh, a person's ability to see the other as a human being? So when that human being is facing a great suffering, has a relative who dies, who is sick, um, that 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 person doesn't kind of understand and sympathize with the other, recognizing that there are some higher stakes to life, just existence itself, the difficulty of making one's way through this world, the reality of life, the reality of death, uh, these things that, uh, that, that are so central to our being. But if all that is is winning the debate, winning the election, getting you know some great and final victory in this world, then... You know, as he says, our religion is going to be 
a secular matter. Our, our intentions are all going to be directed toward victory in this world. Yeah, and he goes on to talk about the way that both on the left and on the right, you have the rise of these political savior type figures. And so speaks first of uh, the woke and the way that they use religious categories in, in framing their political arguments and notes what happened when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died last September, when all of a sudden you had so droves of mourners were gathered outside the Supreme Court, some kneeling, some holding candles as though they were at the Western Wall. In other words, as, as, as if this was some religious shrine and, and some savior, some prophet or something had died. Right? There was a, a religious significance, not just in the investment they made in the decisions of Justice Ginsburg, but in the person of Justice Ginsburg and in the way that the death ought to be marked. And then he goes on to argue that some of the way that, that Trumpism developed, especially heading into January 6th and the Jericho March we've talked about in previous shows, likewise had this kind of savior-like quality where, where, where Trump took on a religious significance in people's minds that, that was beyond just a normal political figure who might uh, pursue policies that you agreed with but that there was something more invested in his success, which of course makes it all the more difficult to believe that he could have failed, right? Saviors aren't supposed to fail. And so if he fails to win re-election, there must be something to it beyond just a lack of votes on behalf of his candidacy. So we have both sides maybe in different ways and to different degrees, putting this extra weight of spiritual um, burden upon their the heroes uh, on their political side, and and so you have these these clashes as you were suggesting a minute ago that that can't easily be resolved because it's the forces of light against the forces of darkness, and vice versa, right? As we switch sides, it's the same the same basic framework, just different people assigned to the opposite roles. Yeah, it's it's one thing when it's comedic, like Michael Scott in The Office, right? Who's famous for saying, "I saved a life." My own, my hero. I really can't say, but yes. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and then when your president, you know, uh, suggests he's not quite at the level of Jesus Christ, but you know, it's, you know I, I may be in the conversation, um, and you know, along with Lincoln and others. But it, there's this, and it's done on both sides. Um, and and it's it, it it's funny when it's funny. It's not funny when it's created a dogma whereby. We've taken imperfect human beings and we put them on a pedestal that they don't deserve, uh, and and that is not good, you know, for the body politics because it's it, it's a pedestal that we love to put them on because we want to show them different than the other, not 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 unifying forces. Yeah, and I think where he's going with all this is to show how, as you give religious significance to politics, you really change the character of religion. Because one of the things that de Tocqueville emphasizes that's valuable about religion, and we talked about the way that Christianity protects democracy from its worst impulses, well, if democracy leads us to focus on the material and the here and now, then religion is there to say, wait a second, there's a bigger world. The universe is bigger than all that, and the end of this life isn't the end. And so it's a, it's a necessary reminder to lift our eyes from the material conditions in which we live to things that are more important and ultimately more fulfilling. We were mentioning earlier uh, the influence of Bacon on the modern mind, and Bacon believed that all of that city of God talk did no good for mankind, that what we ought to work on through science is the creation of a city of man where our common enterprise is the conquest of nature and the conquest of our own nature. That if we did that, that we would live happily ever after. And that impulse from Bacon that gives rise and, and support for much of the modern progressive movement in the late 19th, early 20th century in the United States, it just hasn't proven to be correct. Why? Well, your conquest of nature is imperfect, as we've seen this past year, but your conquest of human nature is inhuman. 
it takes the human out of the picture of life. And, and I think that, you know, this is, this is the problem that we see that causes, you know, these, these great struggles between people. Yeah. And so you end up with something very different from what Bacon would have imagined that you stop talking about ultimate causes. You start, stop talking about the immaterial, you'll focus on the material and we should get very rationalistic, right? Very, very careful in our calculations, very empirical, and, and, and yet there's a part of us that still needs to have religious feeling that still requires, uh, there's a religious part of our soul that must be fulfilled. And so if it's not going to be fulfilled because the scientists won't allow us to fulfill it in things that are beyond the material world, then we'll have to put that religious significance on the material world. And so our politics, here we are, right? This is, yep. this is the politics we have. We, we have to put all that significance on the material things that that we experience. And so therefore our victory in the last election is much more important than the mere changing of one administration for another administration, right? This, this is a, a cosmic battle with cosmic significance. And so the people that are against us are deplorables, right? Not just people that we want to try to persuade to come over to our side and maybe aren't there yet, but they're deplorables or they're enemies of the state because they oppose our administration. They oppose our present agenda. They're, they're people that, that really ought to be seen as traitors in some fundamental way and not really federal citizens along with us. So the piece concludes by basically asking the question, where do we go from here? We have this problem. Is there a solution? And it's maybe surprisingly optimistic at the end of the piece, I think it's fair to say, and hoping that the American creed, uh, the, the overall democratic principles that have informed the regime across its history might be enough to hold the American people together. What do you think, Dave? Is, 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 there, is there hope in that for us moving forward? Well, I think it depends upon uh, the parties, not the political parties per se, but these two, I think, main forces that are at play in American politics today, the progressive movement that is tending in one direction and the reaction to that movement uh, from conservatives uh, by and large. Will conservatives respond to the progressive making everything mistakes about this world by doing the same? so that the next election is the most important election. Everything rests upon getting this person elected. Everything rests upon vindicating this idea of what we're about. Or will the conservative take on more of that earlier American founding mindset where a proper allocation is made toward politics, realizing its importance, but also uh, towards the eternal things? Uh, And then secondly, how far and how quickly will progressives continue to pursue uh, making all about imminent victory? I think that they're the force that is driving this in, in American politics. And I think, are they going to put their foot on the brakes, realizing that their efforts will be more destructive uh, in the long run? And I think that you can see her earlier hope and aspiration and ambition from the fountainheads of progressive thought, the, the Deweys of the world, Crowleys, people that we've mentioned on this show, who that there seemed to be a, a recognition of what is humane or the danger of antagonism, the danger of war in trying to put into place their program, hence their emphasis upon education. But there are other types around the world, other kind of secular humanisms that are at play in the 20th century where now you see this kind of very virulent attack against the other, the desire to get what they want now. If the progressive movement chooses the totalitarian approach of those 20th century forces that have produced some of the greatest evils in the history of mankind, then we're in great trouble. There's something that um, conservatives that uh, be part of a solution uh, that draws us back to a proper recognition of the city of God and the city of man. And I think likewise, um, a need for reticence on behalf of the progressive, realizing that you're not going to really do anything at the end that is better to humanity um, if you've created uh, a human being who is unhappy or a human being who's always at war with every other human being. 
Let's now turn our attention to the grade book. St. Patrick's Day next Wednesday, Dave. I know always uh, an important event around the Corbin household. You've mentioned your Irish heritage a number of times. So we're going to grade some classic Irish dishes that you might want to have on the menu for next week. Number one, corned beef and cabbage. Classic. I think our family growing up had that a number of times on St. Patrick's Day. What about corned beef and cabbage? Solid B. I, I'm going to upset my mother, whose maiden name is Caulfield here, by saying I like pastrami more than corned beef. Okay. But it's good. I mean, it's, you know, with, with potatoes, it, it's, uh, it's, it's great food, a, a solid B. Yeah, I agree with that. That this, you know, corned beef is not my favorite meat, and cabbage is definitely not my favorite vegetable. But, but together, it's it's surprisingly good. And yeah, with with some nice uh, boiled potatoes mixed in there or something like that, I think it makes makes a nice meal. So I think B is a fair grade for that one. All right, number two, Irish stew. We've got carrots, potatoes, lamb, or beef. The problem, and this is another hair, this is, I'm going to get into trouble here. I'm not a fan of lamb, and I, I never have been because when I, I was born in England and um, my grandfather would feed us not lamb, but he'd feed us mutton, yeah. uh, which is the most awful form of lamb, with this mint jelly. And right. you know, from that point forward, kind of even mint chewing gum is a problem for me. Never mind <laughs> lamb. So, I I I'd have had once at a wedding, you know, really excellent, you know, lamb chops. But uh, so I'm I'm personally uh, I'm I'm not into that lamb stew. I'd, I'd give that more of a, a C minus just because uh, it doesn't play to my particular taste and, and history. I haven't had that bad experience. So I actually enjoy the lamb meat or beef for that matter. And my wife makes a great essentially Irish stew from time to time, a lot, lot of good hearty stews. So I enjoy that one, especially on a, on a winter day. I think we're going to have pretty cool weather, probably in the 40s. So it wouldn't be a bad choice probably for us for St. Patrick's Day. I'll, I'll say a B plus for Irish stew. Third choice, shepherd's pie. Shepherd's pie, potatoes, some vegetables, and some beef. Solid basic food which we had pretty much every other night in our, in the Corbin household. So that's the only reason why I'm going to give it a C, but I, I'm, I'm going to give a recipe for everyone to time to make it an A, which may not be in line with St. Patrick's day. I make something called Mexican shepherd's pie where I take the beef and put taco seasoning into it. And then I mix queso with the mashed potato. And then of course use corn and all together in the same uh, plate, those three things uh, make for an A. So Yes, let's let's try the Mexican shepherd's pie uh, this March seventeenth. <laughs> okay, well, I was, didn't see that coming. I'm gonna I'm gonna give that an A minus. I, I mean, I like your 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 variation on that. I should mention that to Rachel because she does a lot of Tex-Mex type of cooking and definitely enjoys some of those flavors. But I like the old old style shepherd's pie as well. You know, it's one of our go to favorites. And yeah, if you just you know slop it all on the plate and just start shoveling one of those foods that goes down easy and, and always tastes good. All right. Last option, bangers and mash. I'm going to give that an A minus. That's one of my favorite meals to have when we were in New York city and uh, we'd be uh, taken to European football uh, pubs. And that's always uh, on the, on the menu then. And it, it's good to have that uh, with a beer, probably Guinness um, right around 10 30 AM, you know, on, uh, on St. Patrick's day. I mean, you have to have, you know, some rules at play. I mean, you, you drink prior to 10 30 and some issues, but after 10 30, you can, you can wash that down uh, as a good brunch with a Guinness. Yeah. We've got a, an Irish tavern or pub in town and my wife and I went there on a date night one time and I got the bangers and mash, which was, which was really good. So that's definitely an A for me. I could, I could eat that regularly. Um, not so much the Guinness, you know, I'm a huge a huge beer person. Uh, my wife and I can finish off a 12 pack easily in the course of a year. Um, so I did have a Guinness once though. And uh, I choked the thing down. Never again. That's <laughs> too much for me. I'm not man enough for Guinness. I'd, I'll, I'll need an ale, I think, to wash it down come Wednesday. All right. We wrap up the show with the Tocqueville's crystal ball. And last week we picked the NBA all-star game. Uh, Team LeBron beat Tim, Team Durant 170 to 150. So that meant, Dave, you hit on both the over-under and the point spread once again. 
I was one for one. I had I'd taken the under, so I was wrong on that. Uh, that leaves you, Dave, 13 and three on 2021. So we're going to call you Brady Belichick. All right. So a classic Brady Belichick kind of NFL season record. And I'm seven and nine, which apparently is Belichick without Brady. Uh, but you know, maybe a good enough to win the NFC East some years. So not horrible. It's been a pretty amazing run. I think when I look back at this, you know, January and February, it's, it's going to be one of the most remarkable runs of, of my betting career. But I just want to keep it going. You know, I now, now know people are counting on pretty much what I say. So I called myself Vegas Dave last week. I mean, remember Jimmy the Greek? You know, right. I, I've, I've, I've got to come up with a good uh, title now. But just the important thing is just kind of continuing to predict well. Okay, well, we're going to make it a little bit challenging this week, to be honest. So we don't have any kind of 50-50 kind of picks here. We're looking ahead to the NCAA tournament. This is the time of year where you've got to do that. But we don't know the bracket just yet, so we can't pick individual games. So instead, what we're going to do is try to project the number one seeds, and then I've got a few questions about the early round results for you as well. We know Gonzaga is going to be a number one seed. They're undefeated. They've already won their conference championship. You can put them in there. So we're not going to try to project that. That one's too easy. And it looks like Baylor's definitely in as well. Baylor's got one loss. I think even if they lose conference championship game or something like that, they're still going to be a number one seed. So the question is, who are the third and fourth number one seeds for the NCAA tournament? And it's interesting because you got like three Big Ten teams that are all reasonable contenders. Um, Three, four, and five in the latest AP poll. Illinois, Michigan, and Iowa. And then Alabama, uh, ranked number six, obviously in the SEC. You've got Houston, Arkansas, and then another Big Ten team, Ohio State. So we're, we're, we're taping this uh, early afternoon on Friday, which means we don't know even who's in the semifinals of some of these conference tournaments, much less the finals. But Dave, um, looking at the, the list of teams that are out there and some of the probable results that are ahead of us, who are you going to take as the third and fourth number one seeds for the NCAA tournament? So I think that Michigan will win that tournament. So I'm going to pick Michigan as, as, as one of the, uh, or the third uh, one seed. And then I think uh, because the other two will have to lose, um, I want to put Alabama in there. So the SEC gets a, a representative uh, as a number one, because I think they'll win that tournament. So Alabama and Michigan, added to Baylor and Gonzaga. Yeah, I'm just looking on ESPN right now. Alabama's currently winning their tournament game 59-31 with 12 minutes to go in the second half. And Michigan, who was down early to Maryland, has now gone ahead by 12 points with about two minutes to go. So Michigan looks like they're through at least to the semifinals. I'm going to agree with you on Alabama. Uh, They look like they're obviously playing well today. And I expect them to win that tournament. I think that's probably enough to get a number one seed. I'm going to take Illinois, who's currently number three team ahead of Michigan number four as the Big Ten champion and therefore the the fourth number one seed. All right. Now we're going to look at, without knowing the bracket for the first round, we know as we, as we make these picks and you know you get involved in your, your bracket contests, you're always thinking about, well, you know, what are the trends, right? Where, where are the upsets going to come up and how often does a five beat a 12 and a 12 beat a five and, and those kind of questions. So the, the question I want to ask you, Dave, is what will be the highest seeded team to lose in the first round? We've only ever had one number one seed lose. Number two seeds have become more frequent. It didn't used to be the case they would ever lose either, but in the last maybe decade or so, there's been several number two seeds that have lost and then number three and four seeds. Uh, you know, most years, uh, one of those seeded teams at least will lose. So what do you think, Dave? What's the highest seeded team to lose this coming weekend? So I'm going to lean towards greater variation uh, given, uh, given the fact that tournament will be held in one city, if that's correct. So I'm yeah. going to say that, uh, that a number two seed loses, that, that uh, someone's going to go in there uh, and knock off a number two seed. And, and, and my reasoning is that uh, all under one roof, there's going to be a lot of pressure on each of those uh, 64 teams to perform in front of one another. So no one wants to go in there and, and be knocked off right away. So uh, one, number two seeds get, one number two seed gives into that pressure and loses. 
And I think, you know, you have some COVID variation too. Not every team's going to respond equally well to those circumstances. So I, I, that seems plausible to me. I still think the ones and the twos get through though. So I'm going to say it'll be a number three seed. That is the highest seed to lose. And I wouldn't be surprised if there were two number three seeds that lose, but I think all the ones and twos will make it through this time around. All right. Last question. As we wrap up the show, now the eight, nine matchup is always the most interesting one in some ways, because obviously it's teams that are supposed to be essentially equally matched. And over the years, they've done a good job with this. If you look at the numbers, um, the eight, nine matchup is basically a 51 49 split in favor of the eights. So kudos to the bracket makers who seem to more or less get it right. So the question then for you, Dave, is how many number eight seeds beat the number nine? Here, I'm going to go Baconian. I'm going two, two seeds, two eight seeds win, two eight seeds lose. I'm going to work, go with the math and what's happened <laughs> right. in the past. All right. Yeah. I'm going to second that. That's what I, I think too. I think it'll be two, two eights and two nines. Uh, and then, of course, it gets interesting to see if any of those four teams can knock off a number one seed in the second round, which, which does happen from time to time and can then really bust your bracket if you didn't see that coming. We will have more to say on that next week, and we'll see how our brackets are doing. But for now, that's going to wrap it up for this week's show. Thanks, as always, for joining us. And don't forget to subscribe and to review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Also, don't forget, you can find us on Instagram, Democracy in America Today, and email us at democracyinamericatoday at gmail.com. Have a great week.